Okay, well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians. We'll be looking at verses 11 through 13 this morning. You can find it on page um, 977 and 978 in the Bibles provided in the chairs. If you don't happen to have a Bible, we want to give you a Bible. And so over on the welcome table, we have some Bibles that are there just for you. Um, We want you to have access to the Word. We love God's Word. We want you to be able to read it. And so please take one. How do we build the church? That has been the topic of innumerable conversations. Thousands of books have been written on that very topic. Church growth is a billion-dollar enterprise. There are hundreds of companies that exist for that very purpose, to help you grow your church. And right now, they have strategists on call, standing by, waiting for you to just pay the money, make the call, and boom, you grow your church. But even if we didn't pay loads of money, even if we didn't go outside of the church to ask for how to advice on how to build the church, we all have ideas. If I were to go around this room and to ask you, hey, how do we build this church? I'm sure that we'd run into a variety of opinions. Some of you might say, well, we should do what so-and-so is doing. That church is really growing. They've got something going on over there. We should do what they're doing. Others might say, you know what we need to do? We need to minister to the felt needs of the people in our community. We need to find out what, what are they feeling as their most deepest and dire need and seek to meet that. And as we meet that and we develop that relationship with them and we serve them in that way, we can then bring the gospel around and share that with them sort of after the fact. Some of you might be thinking, well, we just need to build a building, right? Raise money, build a building. Got to grow a church, you got to build a building, you got to have a church building before you can have a big church. Others may say, we just need to hire the right people. Sorry, Chet, you're just not cutting it. We just got to hire the right people, right? The particularly skilled, very equipped, very able, right personality that would appeal to the masses. Others might say, well, we just, what we really need to do is we need to work on our presentation. We need to. Uh, create an atmosphere. We need to improve the music, lower the lights, and create a mood. Make sure that you don't preach too long or that you don't get too personal or that you don't talk about things that people don't like, like sin, and make sure you go light on the doctrine and the church will grow. Now, there, there could be some wisdom in those things, some clearly more than others, right? I mean, we wouldn't want to hire people outside of their giftedness and call them to do something that they're not equipped to do. But when you think about how Christ called us to grow the church, did he call us to grow the church through fads or strategies, through gimmicks or personalities, through experiences or felt needs? The answer is an obvious no. No. And so over the next two sermons, as we unpack Ephesians 4, 11 through 13, we will see Christ's strategy for church growth. And it looks very, very different than anything that you can read about in these church growth books. How does Jesus say that we grow the church? How does he say that it's done? Number one, receive. Not find, but receive from the Lord Godly, trustworthy, competent men who faithfully proclaim the word. Number two, 
have every member employ the gifts Christ has given them in the faithful service of the church in order to build up the body of Christ. Every member serving. Every member ministry. Number three, don't settle for anything less than full maturity in Christ. That's the goal. The goal is not to get them in, to get them comfortable, to get them wet, to get them giving, and then move on to the next. The goal is complete maturity in Christ. Number four, hold to right doctrine so as not to be deceived. And number five, we must all speak the truth in love to each other. When each of these parts is working properly, this will make the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, this is the closest that you will ever see me getting to a how-to sermon, right? I just won't do it, so this is it, right? So rejoice in the fact that I'm delivering how-to sermons right here. This is it, okay? But this is very different than the how-to strategies that you'll read about in the church growth movement. Now, if you didn't happen to get those five steps, don't worry about it. It'll become clear over time as we unpack uh, this text, what I mean and what I'm getting at. But the main idea that I want us to take a hold of this morning from Ephesians 4, 11 through 13 is this, that Christ gave leaders to equip the church for maturity. Christ gave leaders to equip the church for maturity. Our Lord Jesus Christ has gifted the church with leaders who are given the task to equip each and every believer for the work of ministry within the body of Christ so that together we might grow to full maturity in him. That's where we're going today. So let's read it in our text, Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. It says, And Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You want to see the church grow God's way? Well, the first truth we see in verse 11 is that Christ gave leaders to the church. Now, I want us to think just for a minute before we kind of get into the text. So far in Ephesians, God has given us a lot. God has given us everything, right? According to his eternal plan and based upon his love and his mercy in salvation, God has lavishly poured out his grace upon us. He's redeemed us. He's forgiven us. He's given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, In Christ, we have received an eternal, unfading inheritance that is kept secure for us. We have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. God makes his will known to us. He imparts knowledge to us, and he gives us his holy and revealed word. Now, so often, that's as far as we take it. For me to be a Christian, God gives me salvation. God gives me the word. God gives me the spirit. End of story. We stop there. We move on with life. We think that that's it. But Ephesians has told us so much more. Not only is salvation a gift of God's grace, as is the spirit in the word, but he also gifts us with reconciliation to each other, and he brings us together into God's family, the church. 
He unites us to each other in Christ and he calls and then equips us, every single believer, so that we can live together in such a way as to put God's glorious work of redemption on display for the entire world to see. And how do we do that? By living together in unity, in common purpose, in common goal, in common doctrine, in common life. The goal is to show the supremacy of Christ over all things in our unity as the body. And so God gives us salvation. He gives us the Holy Spirit and his word to guide us. He gives us the church and he gives gifts to each of us so that together we might display the supremacy of Christ over all things. And now here we are in verse 11 and we see that that to this long list of gifts that we've already received from God, Christ also gave the church various types of leaders. Now, my fear in saying that is that I'm already starting to lose some of you. See, we live in an age that is filled with individuals, right? I am the center of the universe. My life is about me, my accomplishments, my purposes, my goals, my mission, what I'm doing. And I look at other things around me only to see how they benefit me. So I'm a consumer, I'm an individualistic consumer. You add to that this fear of commitment and this natural repulse to any type of authority structure. We are anti-authority and we're skeptical any time we hear the notion. We automatically step back and disregard it and call it into question. American Christianity devalues leaders. The media doesn't paint leaders, at least conservative Christian leaders, in a very positive light. And I'm sure that in a personal level, if you've spent any time at all in the church, you've had at least one bad experience with authority figures. Am I right? And so I wonder if in my saying that Christ gave us leaders, this is immediately starting to rub on you. And I wonder if at all the thought crossed your mind, you know what, I I wonder if this message is self-serving. Well, I just want to remind you that this is the very reason why we dig deeply into God's word. This is the why we, why we systematically and intentionally go through a book of the Bible at, at a time, bit by bit and piece by piece, because we want you to understand that this is not my opinion. I'm not up here telling you what I think. This is God's message for us. His message for our good. God knows what we need. He knows what's best for us. He has an intentional, purposeful plan. He didn't make mistakes in it. And so when we're dealing with this issue, we need to be careful and check ourselves because this message is for our good. And so we need to hear him out. And so if you are automatically sort of finding yourself in retreat mode right now, but you're talking about leaders, I'm automatically backing up. Well, then I want you to prayerfully and humbly stop and hear what God has for us. This is his message, not mine. Now, what I want us to do is I want us to look first at these types of leaders mentioned here, and then we will look at why they are a gift to us. 
And so first, Christ gave some to be apostles. Now, what are apostles? Well, apostles could mean a number of things. It could just mean somebody that's sent out by the church, either officially or unofficially in some capacity. Basically, if I said, hey, hey, Matt, could you go and, and run over to the library and tell them that we're having services, right? Then in that case, you would sort of be an apostle, right? That word is used in that reference three times in the New Testament at least, in, in 2 Corinthians 8, Philippians 2, and 1 Thessalonians 2. But what Paul means here is something more. He's talking about an apostle of Christ Jesus, He's referring to a specific role, a particular office of the church. And we know this because of the way he's using the word in the text of Ephesians. All right, so in chapter 1, verse 1, Paul calls himself an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Right? So he is a particular apostle of Christ Jesus. And it is God who determined, it is God who willed for him to be an apostle. Meaning, I didn't make myself an apostle. God made me an apostle. I am not an apostle for myself. I am an apostle for Christ Jesus. All right? I am his apostle, not because of my will or my desire. I'm not exalting myself here. God has set me apart for this role. And if we looked more broadly at the New Testament, what we would see is that these men who were appointed to this role of apostle were actually called out and selected by the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry to be those who would lead the church, establish the church, found the church. And so he gives them uniquely his authority to lead the church and he gives them uniquely his power to perform miracles to verify the truth of what they're proclaiming. Then in chapter 2, verse 20, Paul tells us that the church was built upon or established upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So the apostles, along with these prophets, had a particular charge, had a particular responsibility to establish churches where they did not exist, first time for the church ever, particular establishment of churches that are faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ, a task that they were called to die for, and all of them did, even the exiled John. In chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Paul understood his role as apostle to be a prisoner for Christ Jesus. And this was a stewardship of God's grace that was given to him. So it wasn't a privilege or an entitlement that he had to exalt himself. He was a prisoner for Christ, willing to suffer for the sake of his name. This was a stewardship of God's grace that was given him, meaning that he was a manager, a caretaker of this grace that was given to him. And he was to manage it faithfully for the glory of Christ and for the good of others. And so he was was willing to suffer and be imprisoned and even die for our glory and for the glory of Christ. Chapter 3, verses 3 through 5, Paul tells us that the holy apostles and prophets were uniquely given revelation of God by the Holy Spirit even more than the sons of men in previous generations, even more than Moses, David, Isaiah, and the other Old Testament authors. These apostles and prophets were given divine revelation to write or to proclaim the very authoritative words of God. Or as our children's catechism says, who wrote the the Bible? God let holy men who were taught by the Holy Spirit write the Bible. And in chapter 3, verses 7 through 8, Paul is gripped 
by just how undeserving he is of this gifted position. And he says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power to me. Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. And so Paul, knowing he is woefully undeserving of this task, of this responsibility, of this position, he is out there and he is preaching the gospel to anyone for the purpose that the glory and wisdom and power of God might be manifest, that might be seen in the establishment, the growth, and the unity of the church. And so when Paul uses this word apostle here in Ephesians, he's referring to a particular role, a specific office, a divinely appointed responsibility in the church. Men who were specifically called out by the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ with a particular purpose to go out and establish the church that is verified through miracles that they performed with the leadership and authority that is given them by Christ. They wrote the very words of Scripture and they died for the sake of the name of Christ. Now, you can already kind of tell not too many people fit the bill today, right? In addition to the apostles, Christ gave some to be prophets. Now, the issue of continuation of the spiritual gift of prophecy is not in view here. Why? Because there's a difference between the possibility of New Testament prophecy and what he's speaking of here, of this divinely appointed role of prophet. Because in Ephesians, just like we saw with the word apostle, these prophets are are specific people who have been set apart by God for specific roles. Right? We've already seen these roles mentioned in chapter 2, verse 20, and chapter 3, verse 5. In those passages, they are listed right alongside the apostles as those who have been set apart by God to establish the church in unique foundational ways upon the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they too received revelation by the Holy Spirit for leadership and for the instruction of the church. So again, in Ephesians, Paul treats prophet in the same way he did apostle as a divinely chosen office of authority for the church. What he's speaking of here is different than those who simply have the gift of prophecy as seen in other passages of scripture like 1 Corinthians 12. Now, Before I move on to the other three, we have to notice that the roles of apostle and prophet were both foundational and revelatory, okay? They were uniquely gifted, uniquely called, uniquely equipped with the authority of Christ to establish the church where the church had never existed before in the history of the world, okay? So it's foundational. It's revelatory in that they had received the revelation of God. The mystery of Christ had been revealed to them by the Holy Spirit. And they were to make it known to people for the establishment of the church. So these are both a foundational and revelatory position. Um, They received the mystery of Christ. They made it known. The church was established. Well, now... Now that the mystery of Christ is made known through the Spirit's work, through the Word, and through the church, which has been established, there is no mystery left to be revealed. Therefore, these divinely appointed roles have ceased. These roles. So when we think about the gift of prophecy, now we're called to test every prophecy against 
what? Scripture, right? We test it against Scripture. If it agrees with Scripture, then great. And so in terms of the gift of prophecy, not the role, but the gift, I'm with Charles Spurgeon who said that if it agrees with Scripture, we don't need it. If it disagrees with Scripture, we don't want it. God has already given us the complete revelation of Christ. Now, moving away from these revelatory roles, Paul then mentions three particular roles of proclamation. Christ gave some to be evangelists. Now, these were particularly gifted by Christ and set apart by the church to go out and evangelize, to preach the gospel to unbelievers, whether here or cross-culturally. Now, that doesn't mean that only those who are gifted as an evangelist do the work of evangelism. No, this means that those who were particularly gifted, particularly equipped, particularly sent out by the church for the purpose of sharing the gospel with unbelievers in other ways. So think missionary, think itinerant evangelist. Don't think, ah, that's them and not me. Okay? We're still called to do the work of evangelism. Next, Christ gave some to be shepherds or pastors. God regularly referred to himself or Christ as a shepherd and his people as sheep. And what do shepherds do with sheep? They care for them. They tend to them. They nourish them. They protect them. They guide them. And so so it is with shepherds or pastors. They are those whom Christ has appointed to lead and to guide and to feed and to care for and to protect the flock of God with the word of God. And last on this list, Christ gave some to be teachers, those who were able to instruct the church with regard to right doctrine, those who were able to exposit, to apply, to explain scripture. Now these first four roles would have had a teaching component to them. I don't really think you can be an apostle, prophet, evangelist, or a shepherd without being able to teach, but you could be a teacher without being one of the other four. But I hope what you see is central in all five of these roles is the proclamation of God's word. That's the primary objective that all of these leaders had. To preach, to teach, to instruct, to lead, to guide, to shepherd, to protect the church with the word of God. Christ's strategy for church growth is not about finding someone who's good-looking, who's trendy, who's very likable, who never offends, or who just keeps things light. It's not looking for someone who is worldly-minded or has charisma or natural abilities. Christ's strategy for church growth involves us receiving and sitting under faithful men whose lives and whose doctrine are consistent with the Word of God. These are not mere self-titles bestowed, self-bestowed upon the ambitious or power-hungry men, but these leaders who have been set apart and particularly gifted and particularly qualified by Christ to faithfully and boldly and clearly proclaim and adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ for the good of the church. As Ian Bounds once wrote, the church is looking for better methods, but God is looking for better men. These leaders who are called to faithfully proclaim the truth of Scripture for the health of the church, though they are woefully undeserving, are a gift of Christ to us for our good. Christ gave them to us. Christ gave 
the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. They are Christ's gift to us. They are not meant to be despised or resisted. Christ didn't gift them to you to be minimized or devalued or rejected or, or cast aside and discarded like that ugly pair of socks that your great-grandmother gave you every single Christmas when you were a kid. Christ knows exactly what the church needs to grow. Exactly what it needs to grow. And when he has given it, do not reject his gift. As John Calvin wrote in his commentary, the government of the church by the preaching of the word is first of all declared to be no human contrivance, meaning this was not man's idea. Man didn't make this up, but a most sacred ordinance of Christ, a spiritual command of the Lord Jesus Christ. The apostles did not appoint themselves, but were chosen by Christ. And at the present day, true pastors do not rashly thrust themselves forward by their own judgment, but are raised up by the Lord. In short, the government of the church by the ministry of the word is not a contrivance of men, but an appointment made by the Son of God as his own unalterable law. It demands our assent. They who reject or despise the ministry offer insult and rebellion to Christ, its author. It is he himself who gave them. For if he does not raise them up, there will be none. Another inference is that no man will be fit or qualified for so distinguished an office who has not been formed and molded by the hand of Christ himself. To Christ we owe it that we have ministers of the gospel, that they abound in necessary qualifications, that they execute the trust committed to them. All, all is his gift. You know, I was thinking and reflecting upon Calvin's statement there. My mind went back to the many faithful men in the past that the Lord has placed over me. Leaders who were faithful to shepherd and guide and lead and instruct and disciple me. Those who were willing to encourage me and lift me up and at times admonish and rebuke me because of my sin. Men who loved me and who cared for my soul. What a gift they were to me how much I, I learned from them, how, how I was taught by them. I am who I am today because of them. And so the next time that you're tempted to follow the course of this world, follow the same patterns of individualism or consumerism, just fear of commitment, anti-authority, and to doubt and reject this Christ-given authority and exalt your own individual autonomy, you need to ask yourself this, are they faithfully handling the word of truth? Do they devote themselves to right doctrine? Do they study? Do they pray? Do they labor diligently in their duties? Do they consistently and accurately preach the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are they faithful watchmen? Do they desire to live lives that are consistent with the truth and teach and counsel others to do the same? Are they seeking to keep watch over my soul? If so, then why am I resisting them? Why am I criticizing them? 
Why am I failing to submit to them as I would submit to Christ who gave them? Why am I not grateful for the ways that Christ has gifted them and us to shepherd and lead this church? Friends, receive them as the gift that they are. You know, we have to give an account to God for you. It is the most terrifying part of my job to know that I will stand before the Lord and give an account for how faithful or unfaithful I was with your souls, with your souls. Let us do it with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So Christ gifting us with faithful leaders who preach, teach, lead, and proclaim and live out the gospel is the first step of Christ's strategy for true church growth. The second step is that these leaders equip the church. It is not the responsibility of these leaders to do all the work. Instead, verse 12 says that Christ gave these leaders to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Now, there are a few translators out there who would try to add a comma after the word saints. And so some of these, like the early church father Chrysostom, believed that Christ gave these leaders for the equipping of the saints and for the work of ministry and for the building up of the body of Christ. In other words, the leaders do all the work. Now, I'm not, not going to argue why that grammatically and syntactically is not a possibility because it's literally all Greek to you. But I will just say this, that that interpretation misses the the forest for the tree. All we need to do is look at the larger context of chapter 4. In verses 1 through 3, Paul is concerned that we all, each and every one of us, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. That we all eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In verse 7, he states that to each one of us, Each and every one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So we were all gifted for the purpose of pursuing this unity as a church. And in verse 16, he says that when each part of the body is working properly, meaning each individual member, that it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So you see, we all have a part to play. It's not these leaders that do the work of ministry. These leaders equip. These leaders train. These leaders prepare the saints. That is every member to do the work of ministry. So the function of the leaders is to equip the church and the function of the church is to do the work of ministry. And when everyone is doing their part, every leader and every member, then the body is built up. The body grows when everyone is working for that growth. This is step number two in Christ's strategy for church growth. Every member ministry. When God saves us, when he opens our eyes to see that he is the holy creator God of the universe, that we have rebelled against him and tried to live our lives without him as if this is my world and I am God. When he opens our eyes to see the gravity of our sin and the just wrath of God, the condemnation that it so rightly deserves. When he opens our eyes to see the perfect sacrifice of Christ for sin and how his resurrection guarantees that we will be reconciled to God and to each other forever. God does a work in changing our hearts. He makes us alive. And so we turn in repentance. We turn away from our sin and we turn towards Christ and we are then adopted into Christ's family. We are now together as a body, as one kingdom, as one church. 
We're called to live together in that community. And he unites us to each other. And he also calls and equips each and every one of us to live together in such a way that we might together display his glory to the world. This is what we learned about in chapter 3, verse 10 through 21. Each one of us has been called Each one of us has been gifted. Each one of us has been given the task to build up the body of Christ so that we might display his glory. And so no matter how young or old you are, no matter how weak, no matter how strong, no matter your giftings, no matter your sin struggles, no matter all the baggage that you might think that you're bringing into this new family, you have been called. You have been gifted And you have been given the task of aiding in the work, the Christ-exalting work, to build up the body of Christ. Now this word ministry, it's not referring to a title or an official ministry position, right? These leaders don't equip you for the work of ministry by putting you on a committee or a team and only then, once you've had this official recognition or you've got this place up here on stage so that everyone sees you, that you are then called to perform the work of building up the church. No, that word ministry means service. These leaders equip you to do the work of service. It is work And it is a service. I'm not going to lie to you. Right? That's what ministry is. Ministry that exalts the minister is not ministry. It's idolatry. Because ministry, by definition, is service. It is others focused. It's through the preaching, teaching, and living out of the gospel that the elders strive to see the gospel permeate and change the way you think about and view the world. We're teaching and training your mind. We're proclaiming the word to challenge and to confront and to change your heart. Not that we're doing that by our own power, but the spirit working through the word that we proclaim is that which changes your heart. We model and we train your hands so that you are equipped to do all that God has called you to do. The elders of the church are given to the church, not because the elder is the only important work of Christian ministry, but because the work of the elder is to pour ourselves into you so that you can do the daily work that only you can do and all that God has called you to do. So the Lord intends for you to serve the congregation, to serve one another, to serve the kingdom of God until Christ returns. And these pastors and teachers are here to pour themselves into you so that you can do just that. You know, our church is structured in such a way that from our Sunday morning worship gathering to foundations courses to community groups all the way down to every member serving in the children's ministry for just this purpose. It's no accident that we designed the church the way we did. We did in large part because of Ephesians. But we all have a part to play. You know, one of the clearest indications of a healthy church is mutual ministry. 
when it is evident that these people love each other because they love Christ and, and they're not looking for ex- exaltation, they're not looking for to be noticed, but they see a need, they jump in, they gladly do it because they long to build up the body of Christ. They don't take any recognition, they don't look for any favors, they don't look for any, any blessing to come from other people, they just do it because they love Christ, they love his church, they love his people, they want to see it grow. And so they're willing to do whatever it takes to see that body grow. That kind of mutual ministry gives evidence to the reality, to the truth and beauty of the gospel. So I have to ask you, when you come to our gatherings, do you come to serve or to be served? Do you give thought to how the Lord might use you, even this morning, to build up the body of Christ Or is your focus building up yourself? Are you seeking the glory of Christ and the good of his church? Or are you focused on your own glory and your own good? Friends, our Lord Jesus Christ came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And if we are his followers, we are his disciples, those who walk after him, why would we think that we are not called to do the same? The irony of the Christian life is that we actually receive blessing not by sitting back and waiting to receive blessing, but by giving. There's a reason why scripture says that it is more blessed to give than to receive. And we can give that, and we can give that freely because we've already received everything in Christ. As when you recognize what we've been given, truly what the Lord has given us, it's freeing. It frees us up to give without any, any thought to ourselves, without any thought to partiality, for solely for the glory of Christ and solely for the good of his church because I'm not concerned about me. I've been given everything in Christ. The goal here is not to just give of myself, but to give myself. You see the difference there? Giving of myself comes in and says, you know what? I'm willing to give this much of my time. I'm willing to give this much of my energy. I'm willing to give this much of my paycheck. I'm willing to, to aid at a distance with this limit and no more. The gospel changes all that and says that you will now belong to Christ. That you bear his name. That you are his disciple, his follower. And you are called to build up the church and so you give yourself. Not of yourself, but yourself. So what does it look like for you to do the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ? What, what needs to change for you particularly? I mean, it could just be your attitude about the church, your attitude about serving. Maybe you realize that you don't serve others and that needs to change. Maybe you don't feel particularly gifted or equipped for ministry. Well, there's nothing that's not valuable. There's nothing that's not. I mean, guys, setting up these chairs for this morning, right, is valuable. Are you guys standing right now? That's valuable, right? The fact that you serve up in the children's ministry is valuable. The fact that you have refreshments over there is valuable. The fact that there is toilet paper in the bathroom is valuable, The fact that I'm not standing on glass right now because there was all sorts of broken glass when I came in this morning, 
But without a word, guys grabbed the brooms and they grabbed the vacuums and they started sweeping up. That is valuable. Thank you, guys. It's a blessing. So if you don't feel gifted or equipped for ministry, just know that if you have abilities, if you can do anything, if you can speak, if you can listen, if you can carry things, if you can give hugs, if you can draw pictures, kids, Carson, thank you. She gives me a picture every Sunday. I'm looking forward to seeing what she's got. It is a blessing. It is worthwhile. The only way to discern what you might be gifted for is to get involved and to let the church equip you and to identify those gifts within you. But there is nothing that's insignificant. Maybe you need to take advantage of the opportunities that we have to train your mind, things like foundations courses or to train your heart through community groups or life transformation groups or to train your hands by volunteering. Maybe you just need to be more proactive about serving the people that are regularly around you, like your community group, or giving thought to how the Lord might use you today. Not just some idea, abstract idea in the future, but today about how I might be used in some small way to build up the church. Give that encouraging or edifying thought. Pray with that person who needs prayer. Some of you have been neglecting Christ's gift to you. Neglecting your responsibility to build up the body to the detriment of yourself and to the church. You simply need to commit and to play your part in building up the church. And this one gets us all. We all have this tendency to settle. We all have this tendency to kind of look and and look back over the course of our lives and say, you know what? I'm more involved, I'm more concerned about the edification of the church. I'm serving more than I ever have been the rest of my life. And so that's good. Let's leave well enough alone. Right? I'm, I'm, I'm further than I ever was before. And we should be thankful for that growth. And we are thankful for that growth. But let's not stop it well enough. We have no right to. Because God has so much more for us. And that leads us right into the third point. Christ gave leaders to equip the church, third, for maturity. You see, it's not enough for us to only focus on getting people to pray sinners' prayers, to stop at professions of faith or baptisms. It's not enough that our people live basically upright lives. There's no outward, unrepentant, or flagrant sins going on in this room. Thank heaven. The goal is not to get people to look a certain way or to vote a certain way or to have large numbers or a big fat bank account. The goal is not some lowest possible hurdle that we just need to jump in order to get in or jump just enough that we're safe in being in. But the goal is complete maturity in Christ for the whole church. Verse 13, these leaders were given as gifts from Christ are called to equip every believer for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And here's the goal. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. These leaders equip and these members serve in order to build up the body of Christ. And when are they done? 
when all reach maturity in Christ. Notice that it says until we all attain. We don't ease up when I think that I have arrived. Or I'm not content as the pastor because I see that we have some people that are growing in maturity. Some people are leading. Some people are are serving faithfully in recognized positions. The goal is to spend our entire lives working toward mutual maturity in Christ. Those who are farther ahead, helping those who are further behind until we all reach the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ together. And how do we reach that goal? Well, Paul provides us with three marks to help us to measure our maturity. He's thinking ahead. He's got some goals for us to set in that ultimate pursuit. The first mark is that we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. This is the unity that comes from faith, not subjective faith, but the unity that we've received from the Holy Spirit by God's grace that we are to preserve and maintain according to verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 3. But that unity comes from the one faith, the doctrine. Right? Our unity is dependent upon right doctrine. We saw this in chapter 4, verse 5. We must hold to the one faith. These leaders are given to, by Christ to the church to teach right doctrine so that those in the church would not be led astray by false teaching. That's what we're going to see in verse 14. So we all are to attain to the unity that comes from our agreeing and submitting to right doctrine. It's not that doctrine divides. Doctrine actually unites according to Ephesians. To this, Paul adds, and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Now, this has both an objective and a subjective element to it. Objectively, we need to know Christ, to know who he is, to know why he came, and know what it means to follow him, right? That doctrine, that truth about who Jesus is. But we're to know Jesus for who he is truly and intimately, to know him personally, Knowing doctrine that does not change your life is not true doctrine. You don't truly know Jesus at that point. Having personal experiences that aren't rooted in or consistent with right doctrine is not a true experience. Both Faith is both objective and subjective, orthodox and experiential. We must have both. The second mark of maturity in Christ is that we all attain to mature manhood. Now, being the skeptical, commitment-fearing, anti-authority, evangelistic consumers that we are, we tend to read this as speaking that my personal goal is that I, by myself, would reach spiritual maturity in Christ. But quite literally, this verse is saying, until we all, plural, attain to a mature man, singular. It's not individual, it's corporate. Same thing we've seen numerous times in Ephesians, but like in Ephesians 2, 14 through 16. Christ has broken down the dividing wall of hostility between us that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body, thereby killing the hostility. That one new man at one body, at one new humanity, it's the church. 
Just as we are fellow citizens of God's one kingdom, brothers and sisters in God's one family, being built together by the Spirit into one holy temple in the Lord, we together are called to attain to a mature man, not tossed to and fro like infants by every wind of doctrine, but one firmly rooted, fully grown, mature man in Christ, one mature body, a mature church in Christ. And the third mark is that we all attain to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, when you think about this, think about a ruler or measuring tape that we use to measure our kids. So let's say the goal of my children was to reach my stature, okay? My height, my width, my girth. Hopefully not, right? So we roll out this big piece of paper on the floor. You don't like those big rolls of paper. You roll them out on the floor, right? And I lay down on top of that paper, right? And they go ahead and they start drawing my outline. They draw all around me. And just for good measure, they go ahead and trim out that girth just a little bit, kind of help me out. And we cut that out, right? We cut out that outline of my stature and we go and we tape it up on their closet wall, right? Or their closet door. So it's right there, and from time to time, we take Layden, we take Gabe, and we take Claire, we take Will, and we bring them up to that cutout of my stature, and we trace their stature around mine. Well, as we do that over time, what we see is their, their stature is actually becoming more and more and more like my stature, right? Until eventually Layden is going to be taller than me, in which case I'll, I'm doomed at that point. I will never conform to Layden's stature right? But we are, to, we are to be measured by the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So who is our measurement? Whose stature are we arriving to? Jesus Christ. And we're not talking about Jesus' height, width, breadth here. We're not talking about spatial relations. We're talking about his nature, his character, who he is. We are to reflect and adorn and resemble him in all things. Our measure of stature is not one another. If that was the case, then Laden would think that he's far superior to Will, right? Our standard is not looking at each other, nor can we remove ourselves from the standard because that's what we'll often do. Like us, you know, the introverts, right? We'll just kind of like, okay, I'm not measuring myself against anyone else here in this room. I'm just not measuring myself against anyone. And therefore, I become the standard. That's what happens when we remove ourselves. Now, our measure is Christ. To adorn Christ. To reflect Christ. To be like Christ until finally we are like him because we see him as he is. That that's the ultimate goal that we're moving towards. That we adorn the truth of the gospel in our doctrine, in our lives, to be with him, to see him for who he is. That's the goal. That's what it means to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Whereas F.F. Bruce says, we the church, the corporate Christ, cannot be content to fall short of the perfections of the personal Christ. And so in examining ourselves in light of Christ, we quickly realize there is much for us to do. We have not arrived. We are not good enough because I'm better than so-and-so. He's not the standard. Christ is. 
And he's not the standard for just me, but for all of us. Truth be told, all of these characteristics that we've seen so far in Ephesians, they go together. And so, if there is little or no personal service, if there is little or no edifying of the body, if there is little or no interest in pursuing unity, if there's little or no care for right doctrine, then there is no maturity and no true knowledge of Christ. They go together. They are inseparable. In salvation, Christ took on all our sin and he gave us his righteousness, his perfections. We bear the name of Christ, but not so that we can bring a reproach upon it. But not only has he declared us righteous and given us his perfections so that when God sees us, he sees Christ, but he has also given us his word. He's given us his spirit to work within us, to make that a reality in our lives, to change us, to be like Christ. He has given us his body, the church, so to serve as the laboratory of our growth towards faith and towards love and towards unity and toward knowledge and toward true maturity in Christ. Christ and Christ alone makes it possible and it is only through these Christ-given means that it is possible. So who are we to say, I'll take that, I'll leave that. I'm good by myself. I don't need the church. I like this part of God's word. I don't like that part of God's word. We have no right to pick and choose. Maturity is attained only through Christ's means. And so, if the edification, if the building up of the church proceeds from Christ alone, then surely he has the right to prescribe the manner in which it will be edified, in which it will pursue maturity. We must allow ourselves then to be ruled and taught by men as they are ruled and taught by Christ. We must seek to serve the body of Christ because our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ sought to serve the body for its good, to present her to himself in splendor with without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is the universal rule that extends equally to all people without exception. No one can say that's not for me. Again, Calvin says, the church is the common mother of all the godly, which bears nourishes and brings up children to God, kings and peasants alike. And this is done by the ministry of the word. Those who neglect or despise this order choose to be wiser than Christ. Woe to the pride of such men. Friends, I pray that this passage would change the way you think about a lot of things. It would change the way you think about the church, It would change the way you think about the leaders of the church, the importance of serving the body to build her up, the importance of doctrinal truth, 
the need for full maturity in Christ and how that can only be attained through God's good and wise plan for the church. But not just so that you're told these things, but so that you would actually pursue them. I pray that you would not hold on to some double standard. All right? Basically, excusing yourself from the demands of this passage because you're demanding the perfection of Christ in others as some sort of justification for you not living out this passage. Because we do that all the time. I'm excused from obedience because you are disobeying. You are not perfect, therefore I do not need to be perfect. I pray that you would see that true believers in Christ are marked by growth, by repentance and faith, by desire to pursue unity and knowledge, that long to be mature and are willing to serve to help the church to reach all her maturity together. I pray that you would not think of yourselves first, but out of the joy of God's lavish and gracious work of salvation in your life, that you would desire to exalt Christ and seek what is best for his bride. God's good, wise, and loving plan for the church is for your good. It's for our good. So let's stop fighting against him. Stop arguing and rebelling against Christ and pursue his plan together. Christ gave leaders to equip the church for ministry. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, first of all, I I just have to say thank you that you have not left us by ourselves scratching and searching, striving by our own efforts, by our own wisdom, our own foolishness to find our way to you. But you have made your will, your purposes known to us through your word. Lord, we thank you for the gift of leaders. We thank you for the gift of the church. We thank you that you make maturity possible through the means that you've given. Forgive us for the ways that we have failed to live in light of them, to devalue them, to minimize them, to maybe pursue maturity in some areas, but to the complete neglect of others. Lord, I pray that your word would penetrate our hearts and lead us to repentance and faith, and that we would move forward in faithfulness and seek to build up your body so that Christ might be seen for who he is, that your glory and your wisdom, your power and your grace might be made known in the world, and then we might receive the joy and the goodness you give through your means of our maturity. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.